Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Julia Echeverria. Julia Echeverria es un... It's... Perdón. I'm sorry. Lapsing <laughs> <laughs> into Castellano instead of my mother tongue. Yeah, we can be switching if you, if you prefer. <laughs> it's really great to see you and to have the opportunity to talk to you. Tell me what's up for you these days, what you're thinking about, what's preoccupying you, what what's mattering to Julia Echeverria today. Okay. Right. So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me and for having me here. It's an honor to be in your podcast, Toby. And well, um, I think we're all preoccupied nowadays with the global situation and the situation in in Europe and in Spain also you're living now in space so you're in Spain so you're aware of uh the political situation how everything is well the tensions that are going on right now politically so i think we're all concerned about that yeah and you live in saragossa yeah yeah mm-hmm. i live in madrid in my barrio i've seen tens of thousands of protesters many on behalf of Palestine, but the vast majority on behalf of the far right of Spanish politics. Yeah. Has there been a lot of that kind of street action by the right uh, in your town also? Yeah, uh, yeah, there is also the same. It's the same thing. I think maybe at a smaller scale, but uh, yeah. there the were also demonstrations here some weeks ago, and, yeah, it's the same thing. Also pro-Palestine, but uh, I think, as you said, uh the the other ones are more numerous and or at least they shout more <laughs> one of the things i found very hard to believe was i i went to a couple of these demonstrations that were on about the same time mm. and mayoral statistics and the mayor of or president of madrid is not exactly from my side of politics yeah. shall we say mm. but even her official stats said there were a hundred thousand in favor of the far right and of course the far right claimed a million But also it was said there were 70,000 for Palestine. And I saw some people marching with both flags, with the Castilian flag over one shoulder and the Palestinian one over the other. This was amazing to me. That that makes no sense. (laughs) But yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) I know. So, um, yes, the world situation and the Spanish situation, we are in a big political crisis here. Mm -hmm. And we still don't know how it's going to turn out because we've got to see what the Senate does. We've got to see what the local judiciary does. And the local judiciary is stacked in favor of the far right. And of course, mm-hmm. what European courts may do with exactly. the historic compromise made by with, made by the so-called socialists. Yeah. <laughs> and Junts. And Junts, for those who, as is often the case in the Anglo world, think of Catalan independence as a romantic progressive force. Mm-hmm. Are totally regressive on gender and race exactly. and sexuality, and you know it, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and yeah, so it's uh, it's getting the, the situation is getting like the two extremes are pulling the 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 ropes. I think nowadays in in Spain, so it's it's not a good situation. It's very unstable, and the mm. fact that well, as you know, it all depends on uh, you either have the far right or you have the nationalists who are asking for the uh, independence, as you said, of Catalonia, etc. So this this tension there that is no good. Yeah. And as somebody speaking from Saragossa, is that where you grew up or did you move? Mm-hmm. 
No, actually, I'm from Pamplona. Uh, yeah, Navarre, <laughs> which is also in the news lately as well. So, <laughs> so are you Taurino or anti-Taurino? Anti. <laughs> <laughs> could you could you explain that for people who may not know the context? Well, uh, Pamplona is famous for its uh, festivals, uh, San Fermines, which actually, uh, well, these uh, festivals take place in many other Spanish cities, but um, they became famous particularly in Pamplona because of Hemingway. He was in love with the city and he wrote uh, different novels on the city. So um, so it, it has become a major tourist attraction and it all revolves on the what's called the encierro of the bulls in uh, in the streets of Pamplona. So uh, it takes place at eight o'clock in July. So it lasts for well till the sixth of July, to, uh, from the sixth of July to the fourteenth. And every morning you have the bulls running on the streets of Pamplona. And well, lately there have been demonstrations every year uh, against this. Uh, because, well, of course, apart from the running of the bulls, you have then the corrida, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we don't know what will happen. But of course, the festival has many other traditions apart from that. I love the other traditions. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm very much fond of that. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the things about bullfighting is that for a lot of us who are not from Spain, we think of it as a an utterly national pastime but actually it's quite regional isn't it it's, it's yeah not, I mean where I am right now in Catalonia it's illegal for example mm-hmm. and there are lots of parts of the country where it has never been that big a deal am I right in saying that yeah 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 hmm. yeah you're right and it's uh, it's just like something from a very few well the very few people I think are actually Taurinos or I want to think that <laughs> yeah <laughs> But it's got something to do with nationalism and masculinity, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you say it has to do with, uh, with nationalism? It's got yeah. something to do with at least yeah. a version of nationalism and a version of masculinity. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Torero is like in front of the bull, uh, this, this macho <laughs> fighting, right, against the animal. Yeah, it is, yeah, very masculine, right? So did you go up reading Hemingway? Was that part of your entry into English? Because you, you're no. a professor of English, right? Yeah, I'm, I, well, I studied, well, I moved to Zaragoza to study uh, the English studies degree. Uh, it was not because of Hemingway, not because <laughs> of the tourists that came to Pamplona either. But uh, um, yeah, but um, so it was the English studies degree, which was called Philologia Inglesa at the time, so English Philology. That's uh, on literature, linguistics, as you know. So uh, that's my background, we could say. Yeah. And within my department, we are kind of a rarity in Spain because because we have the um, a research branch on uh, film studies, which is not very common for uh, English departments in Spain. So, yeah, that's, that's, and that's where I specialized here. Yeah. And we should probably say that philology or philologia here means something slightly different from what it does in most English departments in the English-speaking world, where it tends to refer to what used to be dominant but now isn't so important, a, a brand of literary history. Exactly. Specifically the history of language. Whereas here it mean it can mean literary criticism, 
exactly or, or language studies but especially literary criticism literary theory and all sorts of things right yeah including culture studies yeah yeah really really different i got confused by this when i yeah arrived here last year so th there's that distinction and film is important in your department now why is that and was that part of what attracted you to the place Uh, well, I actually didn't know that uh, it was such a strong department on film, and it was uh, it was my thesis supervisor, uh, Celestino Deleito. He was the one uh, who initiated uh, film analysis in the department, and I think a pioneer in Spain in, in English studies. So uh, he started with theater, and then it was like an organic move from theater, Shakespeare, to then started analyzing movies and. Yeah, he initiated that path. He opened that path to us, and that's great because that's we have now a very lively uh, research team. Yes. Well, actually, we have two research teams in <laughs> in on film, so that's uh, that's very good, right? Well, I'm very much hoping to visit Saragossa again. I went for just a quick day trip and met with quite a few of you in order to record a podcast with you know maybe each of the groups. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that would be great, but. You're welcome. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> the reason I contacted you was because I read about your new book. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell us a wee bit about that, please, Julia. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so I published. Well, this was actually part of my uh, PhD dissertation. So I started it. Well, it goes away long back because I started this on uh, 2010. And uh, actually, um, it was so I had to choose a topic. Uh, I had to ask for a re for funding, uh, a grant, right, a research, research grant, and the funding had to be within a research project. So at the time, my supervisors, Celestino Dereito and Marimar Azcona, uh, were working. The research project was on transnational cinema. So um, this was also the moment of the swine flu pandemic. Uh, so I decided to uh, started analyzing uh, films about pandemics, uh, global outbreaks, um, and started looking at it from the perspective of genre theory, also from a transnational cinema's perspective. So this is uh, this was way before COVID-19. Uh, I finished my PhD thesis. Uh, in 2017, and then COVID-19 came along, <laughs> as we all know. And so now I've um, uh, retaken the, the PhD thesis, uh, changed it, adapted it to a book. And yeah, so this is uh, my new book. <laughs> and what's it called? Uh, it's called Epidemic Cinema, The Rise of a Genre. Epidemic Cinema, The Rise of a Genre. And who's yeah. the publisher? Uh, Rodlich. It's in the series Advances in Film Studies. You've made an advance already just by being in the series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or you've helped the series to advance. So I guess there's an obvious denotative meaning, but perhaps you could expand a little bit on the concept of epidemic cinema. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, so actually, well, uh, the thing is that when I started researching this topic, Uh, I never saw epidemic cinema defined as a genre and still hasn't because it's uh, it's a mixture of many different genres. So it's horror movies, science fiction, 
and many other genres that can come, including drama, bio, uh, biopics on scientists, for example. So there are many different genres that that crisscross there. And so there were many things written about different epidemic films, but within other genres. So they never um, linked these films together as a, as a genre in itself. Uh, so this is... Uh, well, of course, there have been different works on these films. Uh, like, for example, there's uh, Priscilla Wald's uh, work on the outbreak narrative, uh, the outbreak narrative in general, not just for cinema, but literature, journalism. She explains the basics of this narrative and some other works later on on the genre as well. So uh, the thing is that one of the first things is the terminology of the genre, because there's no single term to name these films. Uh, there are many different uh, terms that have been used, like uh, virus films, uh, outbreak narratives, um, pandemic movies. So pandemic movies seems to be like the most uh, catchy term right now. And there's actually an article um, written from the pragmatic perspective of the genre saying that, uh, well, an analysis of the different uh, agents, how they use the different terms to refer to the genre and how after COVID-19, the most popular name used by the audiences, critics, scholars was pandemic movies, right? So this is like uh, one of the terms that I think is catching on. But I decided to uh, call it epidemic uh, cinema for different reasons. First of all, because uh, epidemic, well, it's, uh, names the subject matter of the genre, right? There's an epidemic. Uh, it also can be an adjective that talks about the genre itself being epidemic, like contagious, the, the, the conventions going viral from one film to the other. And also because pandemic, I think, is very specific to a global outbreak. And many of these films are not pandemics, but are restricted to local areas, cities, and uh, they don't go global, so I think it's more accurate to use epidemic rather than pandemic. And then uh, a third reason would be that uh, the word epidemic itself has this meaning, uh, well, coming from uh, demos like people, something falling over people. So this downward movement of people, which is something that I analyze uh, in the genre and in these films as one of the main conventions of the genre. So yeah, that's the the title, and that's the reason for for the name. And what, where, which countries are you focused on? Is this English language cinema? Is it Hollywood? Yeah. So unfortunately, this is part of my requirements being in an English study studies department that I have to focus on English speaking movies. Uh, it's a shame, but of course, I mention other films, and other films are discussed in. Uh, especially in the chapter where I analyze the genre. But the case studies are all English-speaking. So uh, Contagion, for example, is one of the case studies, Steven Soderbergh's film. Uh, Children of Men, which is a British film by Alfonso Cuaron, uh, a Mexican director. <laughs> and uh, yeah. then Blindness, which is uh, by a Brazilian director. So they're quite transnational also. Uh, some of them are Hollywood Warm Bodies, also it's a zombie film, uh, also a Hollywood film. So I've tried to open it up as much as I could. 
I guess I have two comments on that on those things. One is to say I'm a bit disappointed that you're obliged to focus on yeah, language materials when you're in just because you're in the English department. That's I not know. the idea of academic freedom. But the second thing would be to ask you about the zombie film, because mm -hmm. this was very much sort of B-movie crap in the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. and then became something really significant for many young people in popular culture in many parts of the world mm -hmm. and in a sense precedes and is more significant than perhaps the wave of films about contagion in general. It's been huge, hasn't it, at a comical yeah. level and at a horror level. Do you have a, an explanation for that at all? Well, that the has been, uh, this is one of the things that I came across when I started uh, researching this because uh, I was trying to avoid zombies, but it was impossible to avoid them. <laughs> well, they come them. after you no matter where you go. Yeah. The door's closed, <laughs> it's bolted, everywhere. it's locked. You think you're safe, but they're still after you. Exactly. So um, they were everywhere, not just in films, but in scholarly discussions because, uh, well, from the 2000s, there was, as you said, there was a phenomenon that on zombies that was incredible. And I think it still is. There are still some movies and series being produced. And um, so, as I said, I tried to avoid it, but it was impossible because I wanted to focus on the epidemic side or the scientific part of it, like the virus part of it. But the, the interesting thing is that uh, what I saw is how zombies evolved from, well, from the very beginnings uh, the voodoo lore of the zombie in Haiti. So this is the origins of the zombie, which has nothing to do with viruses or pandemics. So the zombie was actually an individual uh, that was a slave that was enchanted by a master. So it, has, it had nothing to do with a virus or a pandemic. So how it all evolved from that to, thanks to uh, Romero, the master of the genre, uh, who made Night of the Living Dead, etc., and he initiated this idea of the mass invasion um, later on. And uh, even though still the question of the virus was not there, there was, of course, the question of contagion, but there was not a pandemic in itself. Mm -hmm. And then from, it, it is from the 2000s that this idea of the virus has been inoculated in the zombies, which is very interesting because this is, in fact, what I argue, how... Um, in contemporary reality, we're living in a viral age, an age of pandemics, but not just real pandemics, but very metaphorical pandemics. So, uh, and this is a symptom or a reflection of this, of these worries. Of course, there are many, many different theories about zombies. And the good thing about zombies is that they are like a blank canvas. You can put any kind of uh, signification there or meaning. Uh, they can mean anything, but one of the theories that I like very much is that um, they express, and this is something that I talk about in relation to the movie Warm Bodies, they reflect this nostalgia for a past that was slower past, easier past, like um, as opposed to the modernity, fast-paced modernity, even if, of course, zombies nowadays are fast-paced as, as well but uh but in the case of warm bodies it reflects this nostalgia for the analogical past as opposed to the digital present uh this kind of going back to something that that is embodied in in a way and that is um 
irrational as well. So as opposed to the over-rationality of the world, we could say. Yes, but there are so many theories on, on zombies and on, on their... Mm-hmm. Interesting. Let me interrupt you for a second. I must apologize, Julia, for something that our listeners won't know, but you've seen me perhaps go up and down. This is because my hotel chair is crazed. And okay. So I can be up here one minute and then right <laughs> down below in another. I do apologize. I don't yeah, know you were sinking in the it. ocean. <laughs> I, I know. It's the only chair in the room, so... <laughs> I'm sorry if I suddenly it's okay. again. It's okay. Um, no, I think that's incredibly interesting. And there's no doubt that for many of us, the more things become digital, the less they become free. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've noted is just the extraordinary institutional paranoia of big entities like universities over mm-hmm. things like passwords. And you'd think that we had passcodes to Trident submarines and we were about mm-hmm. to start a nuclear attack somewhere. Exactly. What we want to do is talk to somebody about her scholarship. Exactly, right. (laughs) Open-hearted way. So I think that there is something there that is lost in amongst what obviously is an enriched world in some senses. But this issue of slowness interests me. We're seeing things like slow television in Mm -hmm. Norway, Slow journalism, people talk about. The Italians, some on the left who were also entrepreneurs in the 80s or 90s, started the slow food movement, particularly yeah. with like cheese and whatnot. This fascinates me. Now, what does, how does that speak to you? What's your, do you have a position on this at all? Well, uh, there's also slow fashion. <laughs> I don't know if of course, that. slow yeah. fashion is a really big deal at the moment, isn't it? And will continue yeah. to be, I think, because of, in part, the horrendous, ecological footprint generally yeah. yeah so i think fashion. yeah you're right that uh i think there's this movement to try to go back to uh nature and to try to go back to the slow life right like we're all accelerated right now with this uh neoliberal uh capitalism we could say so everything is accelerated and there's this nostalgia and i think the the pandemic and actually the lockdown also had an effect on that, how people got in touch or want, at least in Spain, people wanted to go back to uh, villages uh, because of the experience of this traumatic experience of being in lockdown in a small apartment where we or most of us live. So many people has tried to uh, well uh, go back to nature, to rural life, to try to live a slower life. And that's that's very interesting and a kind of resistance against uh, this digital world, how everything's moving so, so fast, screens, uh, yeah. But it's also a traditional renunciation of urban life, isn't it, that often mm-hmm. happens with quite culturally conservative fractions who associate yeah. urban life with, you know, what Simmel wrote about in the 19th century, about uh, places where patriarchy couldn't rule the roost, because Good. women would go and they might be oppressed in other ways and often having to work in sexually related activities. But they didn't move around with in the knowledge that everybody knew everything they were doing and whom they were doing it with in terms of mm-hmm. their fathers, their mothers, the head priests and so on in the village, right? Exactly. And, and also this can be a renunciation or a rejection of immigration and mm-hmm. of racial difference often, this uh, nostalgia 
Exactly. So, yeah, it can be very reactionary nostalgia, right? It can be yeah, very yeah. dangerous. And we see yeah. that politically, yeah. At the same time, as I get it, uh, one of the problems with cities is that illness travels around them pretty quickly when it yeah. is something that is highly contagious, right? Exactly. And because of things like mass transit and offices and factories, people are pushed together in a cramped way. I was lucky in that I was living in Mexico when all this happened, in Mexico City, so mm -hmm. <laughs> about 24 million people. Yeah. <laughs> lockdown was institutional, not personal. Mm. Actually, we could go and do anything, anytime, anywhere we wanted. There just wasn't anything to do because yeah. <laughs> the cafes, the bars, the libraries, the museums, the music venues were shut. But you could go out and walk around and relax mm -hmm. whenever you wanted. And it seems to me that it's a real pity that that wasn't done here in Spain. You know, that yeah. let's cut out the institutions, but let's let people walk around. Yeah, it didn't. I mean, Mexico was a disaster in terms of the suffering and death of COVID-19, but not as far as one can tell because of that. It was because of all kinds of other issues to do with mm -hmm. class and race and bad politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. It was here in Spain. It was very traumatic. We couldn't even go out. Uh, we couldn't. Yeah, it was. And it became a kind of, well, you felt you were in a kind of dictatorial, dictatorial state where if you went, set a foot outside, you would be punished yeah, for that. So it was very extreme. And, and I don't know if that helped or not, because I think it, it was it is very traumatic. Yeah. If you don't mind my asking, where did you spend the lockdown period and what was it like for you and yours? Well, I spent it here in Zaragoza and uh, actually in a very, very small apartment. We didn't have we didn't even have windows that um, outside to the street <laughs> that looked outside to the streets. Yeah. So so we have a patio that was good, but uh, no vision of the street. We just had like the camera for um Telefonillo, right? <laughs> and uh, and that's it. Yeah, so it was... Uh, you, were out, you were allowed out, you know, to walk the dog or ride a bike for certain... Yeah, there were some day. Is that right? There were exceptions, but we don't have a dog. So, <laughs> so we... Yeah. You could have adopted a dog immediately. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So it was... Yeah, it was... Uh, you just could go out to shop uh, yeah, and that's it to the grocery shop and that's that that's it yeah so it puts a lot of pressure on people who live with others and on people who live alone too in different ways and especially exactly. young people i mean very young people I, i worry that one of the reasons that a lot of older professors are having difficulty dealing with undergraduates right now is that uh, they had no late adolescence exactly And we're seeing that at the universities right now. Uh, we see how they, well, they lacked some very important years of their lives. Well, uh, because, well, it was some months, right? But then uh, distance learning to, uh, well, distance learning took, uh, well, for was for a long time like that. And uh, that affected them also academically. We see that every year, but also in their socialization. So it is, uh, we saw how they were, eager to be in contact with each other when once we retook the classes again. Um, and I teach first year students and yeah, I think they were, they needed that 
contact again and those, that socialization because it was very very traumatic for them and a very special age and very important age and it's an age when one's body is still transforming in certain ways and a, a sense of independence may be quite new um do you use some of the films or other texts that are relevant to your research in classes have you seen students respond uh well the thing is that uh i teach different courses and i teach films film analysis but it's like uh mm, very few hours and i cannot change the syllabus a lot so uh i haven't used my films we could say i haven't experimented on them but uh <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah, I try sometimes to mention some of these things to them uh, in relation to the pandemic. But also, I think that I was worried. Sometimes I played a clip of, for example, Contagion, and I saw that they were so. Uh, this was right before COVID nineteen that I was playing this, and uh, in class, well, right before March twenty twenty, right before lockdown, and I saw that it was very scary for them. So. I see that uh, the, some sometimes now they I see that they are very susceptible and vulnerable to images, which is something that surprises us because we have the impression that they're used to gore and they like that. But I see the opposite. That sometimes they're scared of horror movies of of these kinds of movies. So sometimes I try to avoid them in class. That's really interesting. So. When I was in Mexico, all the teaching I did once the pandemic hit was virtual. Mm. But there, of course, we're dealing with, or I was dealing with an extremely impoverished population. So there's no Wi-Fi at home. There's mm. no laptop. It's nine family members in three rooms and mm. everything's using the phone. And in 20% of cases, the breadwinner perished during the pandemic and mm. so but the next place where I taught after the pandemic was more or less gone, at least in that iteration, was with wealthy U.S. students mm. who spent their whole time during class, depending on whether they were male or female, pretty much, looking at influences on fashion and makeup mm. or betting on sports. Oh. <laughs> and those were no doubt more interesting than what I was offering. <laughs> But once I worked this out, I tried to do things like teach about influences and fashion oh, and makeup yeah. and sports. It yeah. still didn't work. I couldn't okay. really capture them. Okay. <laughs> I always had a lot more flexibility than do you. And I thought if I could focus on these things that they're using to enjoy themselves and to cope mm. with in the context of this emergence from mm. a whole, maybe I can communicate better. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the real thing because the real thing was betting for the boys and looking at personal appearance for the girls. Yeah, that's a shame. And especially the contrast that you saw between Mexico and then the United States and the two different, very different attitudes there, yeah. Oh, very. Because in Mexico, while people are suffering incredibly, they're extremely dedicated to learning and respectful of books, libraries, research, and the opportunity to go to a university. 
Mm. I mean, really, bit really a gigantic distinction. Yeah, I have to say, we see that in Spain as well. Like the, do you? Yeah, okay. what you say regarding the U.S. students. Yeah, that sometimes they they are not motivated. You have to try your best to offer them a kind of theatrical experience so that they <laughs> are motivated. Yeah, and I think I, we saw that also how COVID nineteen affected that. They, they, I think they're less motivated after that. So we hope the new generations get better, yeah, and <laughs> they um, that this is like a generational thing that ha thing that has to do with what they've lived. Yes, and I worry for them a great deal in terms of what will happen when they go into the middle class workforce and mm. they can't behave like this except not yeah. the time anyway. Yeah, exactly. In any event, um, yes, I think it is a conjunctural effect, and but it does relate to class. Hmm. Uh, without a doubt and of course yeah. that relates to cultural power national mm -hmm. cultural power so speaking of that i wonder if we could go back to cinema and if i could ask you about the sorts of critiques of hollywood that are not just about its texts but its basic domination mm -hmm. and the sense that it crowds out alternatives now spain has a remarkable tradition going back over a century of contributions to the avant-garde as mm -hmm. well as to conventional narrative cinema. What would you say is the interrelationship here in Spain between Hollywood imports and domestic production? Well, that's, that's a tough one. <laughs> but... I know. I said it would all be softball, and look what happened. I sat down yeah. and <laughs> Well, um, obviously, I think, well, it depends on who you're analyzing, uh, which audiences you're analyzing. But in general, uh, in Spain, um, we see the influence of Hollywood uh, uh, in audiences. So this, uh, I think most of the market uh, is Hollywood films, Hollywood productions, and also streaming platforms with Hollywood product products. But of course, as you said, we have, uh, and in general, we are rather protectionist or the government with Spanish cinema, which is good. And uh, there are very good um, filmmakers and production in productions in Spain. Um, I was thinking about uh, lately, I was thinking about this when we, we were talking about going back to nature. There has mm. been this movement in Spanish cinema, I think, lately of these rural films with uh, 20.000 especies de abejas. Uh, I don't know how they translated that into English. 20,000 species of bees. <laughs> or asbestos last year, uh, Alcaraz. So there have been some very good movies on nature, which is also, I think, a consequence of uh, the COVID-19 and the lockdown. So, yeah, there's this, um, there's this tension between the Hollywood imports and then the very specific national cinema with its own idiosyncrasies. And of course, there are some filmmakers that are very transnational in the sense that some Spanish filmmakers that try to adapt to these new Hollywood trends of uh, making cinema or making a more mainstream cinema as well. I'm thinking of uh, Bayona, for example. Uh, yeah, so there's, there are these interrelations, which I think they're the good, that we're still yeah. maintaining a, a Spanish cinema with a Spanish flavor, we could say. I was uh, 
Oh, it's a beautiful magic hour outside, Julia. Okay. So it's that magical moment, at least here. I don't know what you can see. We've yeah. already, we haven't got much of a window. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no, I'm living in another apartment. So it's, oh, you're in a different apartment. Okay. Yeah, we moved allowed, to a big to the world. <laughs> But you still don't have a dog. No, <laughs> we don't. I'm telling you, for the next lockdown, it's that magical moment that cinematographers talk about when there's a copper tinge to the clouds. Mm, yeah. Right? Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I can see that, a pink tinge. Yeah, yeah you've got that too. That's great. So the, yeah. you get the magic hour <laughs> in yeah. Salvador and Barcelona simultaneously. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just wanted to turn and have the real uh, water, natural water behind you rather than the fake natural water. Mm. Or this I took this in a hotel room in Malaga. This okay, big, that's big good. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that that's incredibly interesting. And, of course, the other thing is that we get some series on Netflix mm-hmm. and that I think are also with TVA and sometimes mm-hmm. with European Union money that are, I can't remember any names of them, but I've watched quite a few, that are sort of policiacos, no? They're, yeah. They're like police procedurals, but they're about women in crazy rural environments mm-hmm. where you know, there is superstition and magic and madness and incredible violence. And yeah. women have to struggle against this. And sometimes it's struggling against male violence and sometimes mm-hmm. there's female violence too. So there's also a dystopic element to the rural yep. Spain, isn't there? Yeah, it there is. There's a utopic vision yep. of a return to the agrarian. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It is a very, uh, well, it is connected with magic as well. And yes. with, as you said, very sometimes patriarchal structures so uh, that you have to fight against. So, yeah, I agree on that. Yeah. And sometimes these are women who've gone to the city to escape all of this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then been posted back as a yeah. lieutenant in the, the Guardia or the Policia Nacional or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> Suddenly- yeah. They're back with their mothers and their sisters and there's no escape. <laughs> yes, and there are many narratives about that. Yeah, I agree. There are, there are many, yeah. many narratives about it's that. Sort of, it's the Bildungsroman, but applied to women. Mm-hmm. And this return to what they know and love, but also detest and had to flee. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and how to confront their past, which is yeah. which they escaped from. Yeah, that's, that's... It's diving back into the rural patriarchy, having been given some kind of similar like invisibility in the exactly. urban patriarchy, albeit vulnerability too, right? mm-hmm. all those things. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to throw that in because I'm not an expert on any of these topics at all, but I just wanted to toss into the mix a few of my viewing experiences to see mm-hmm. how they gel with your much more profound knowledge. So here's the next question. I've got a couple more questions for you, okay. Prof. And mm-hmm. then when I've asked those couple of questions, I'd like to throw it open to you to add anything that you wish mm-hmm. to what we've discussed. Does that sound okay? okay? Yeah, perfect. A way of concluding. So first thing is to ask something that is a bit like a job interview question and it's annoying, but nevertheless, it's always in my mind. How do you select the text you're going to write about? Yeah, that's a very good question <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> well, sometimes, uh, well, in my case, when I was writing the book, I selected the different case studies where there are some of the films is films that I really like, like, like Children of Men, for example. Uh, but they were all selected because they 
express something other apart from the virus. So uh, there's some something else that spreads apart from the virus. So it can be, and that's one of the main arguments in, in my book, is that it's not only viruses, but there are some other things that spread virally that can be affects, uh, like fear or love, not necessarily negative things, but also positive things. So there's like a turn of the notion of contagion that's not always negative, but it can be a positive force as well. And um, so... Um, yeah, it can be, for example, love as a mobilizing form. So each of these films represented one of these aspects that I wanted to talk about. So that was the way in which I selected them. Yeah, And of course, your passions can be very important in what delivers a thesis or a book. One of the things I often say to people who are having trouble finishing a doctorate or moving on to something else is, first of all, to say this doesn't have to be the last word about you and your interests. Mm -hmm. But secondly, when you're dealing with the annoying constraints of surveillance and so on by mm -hmm. universities or governments or boyfriends or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the constraints may be, yeah. or the discipline, it's always worth working out what you need to do to satisfy those forces or not. But also never to lose sight of what got you into the game in the first place, what interested exactly. you, what dynamized you, what mattered. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly. what I try to tell myself when I'm getting frustrated. You know, I've had a very bad time. Um, the Spanish government keeps refusing my visa renewal, uh, even though I have a contract. And oh. that's really difficult, obviously, to be sin papeles. Mm. Or what um, nowadays Mexicans in the US, I recently discovered, call... Uh, they call themselves Los Indos. Okay. Los, Indocumentados. Los Indocumentados. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, so, so inventive with language. It's, yeah. As people are here. Amazing. Yo soy un indocumentado. El pobre. El pobre campesino intelectual. No. Itinerante. Intentando simplemente sobrevivir. Pero con la mano del Estado. Anyway. The mm. point is, when you're... Dealing with that, it's easy to lose sight of the things that excite you, give you pleasure, and that get you thinking. And and that's the same when you're dealing with how on earth can I finish my PhD? Exactly. <laughs> right? I think. Uh, well, it's easy to lose track of your passions sometimes when you're writing or when you start doing research, right? <laughs> you start to forget why you started uh, working on that and why. Right, because there are all these formulae that you must follow. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so on. Yeah. And they can have all kinds of redeeming features and value, but they can also feel like a constraint that's killing your, your passion mm -hmm. for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great you choose things that uh, you love or that stimulate you in some way. But, of course, there's also a conceptual theme that c connects them, and I think that's an important thing. So my, my last question is, I guess, an obvious one, are you just drawing a deep breath and relaxing now or have you got a next project in mind? Well, actually, I have a new project uh, because we are uh, editing a new volume and it just got accepted by Ravlich. So this Whoa, is congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm co-editing this volume with uh, two of my colleagues from the University of Zaragoza, Maria del Marazcon and Pablo Gomez. And this comes out of a conference that we organized two years ago on cosmopolitan aspirations in cinema. 
And that's, mm-hmm. that's actually the title of the book, Cosmopolitan Aspirations in Contemporary Cinema. And, and this is a collected volume with different chapters on mainstream Hollywood films, but also other films from uh, Singapore, Brazil, other countries. Uh, so from a cosmopolitan perspective. Yeah, so uh, it is very interesting. So this is our new project and <laughs> we're working on that now. That's exciting because it's it's sometimes difficult to get edited collections accepted now and it's often difficult to draw together what happened at a conference mm-hmm. or the excitement that it can produce yeah. to generate something written. Yeah, it is. So we're very happy about it. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's really exciting. Great. So I'm going to put a link to your web page at the university at the okay. bottom of the materials about our episode and so people will be able to learn more about your work and so on thank you not at all thank you as you see the chair i'm the one moving yeah you're disappearing around now but i'm I'm not actually disappearing anymore i've (laughs) i don't know what i did to make myself go up and down like that i was like an umbrella when suddenly there's rain and then there's sun and then there's rain Um, but I'm wondering, Julia Cheveria, Profe, if there are things that you'd like to add to what we've discussed. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm very happy with what we talked about. I don't know if I I sold myself very well. But... <laughs> You're a <laughs> neoliberal subject. New <laughs> neoliberal subject par excellence. <laughs> oh my God! I'm going down. It happened. Thank you. Okay. It was, it was a real pleasure to talk to you and to meet you, even if it's online. And I hope that you come to Zaragoza and that we can discuss more things. And I, I'd really like that. And and maybe we could do podcasts with the two cinema groups that you have that would there be amazing. in, in yeah. the department. And uh, perhaps when, not for a while, the edited collection appears, you and your edit, co-editors might venture into of the course. jump into the pod, look around, Watch the magic hour, see the chair going up and exactly. down. Exactly. <laughs> that would be amazing as well, of course. <laughs> so thank, thank you so you, much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Toby.